You know the story? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it bothers him that his son, the simpleton, uh, does nothing all day. So he calls his son in and he gives him a bag of gold coins. And he says to him, go into the marketplace and uh, handle by wholesale, you'll sell retail, you become a mensch. The simpleton takes the gold coins and he walks around in the marketplace like a simpleton. And some guy notices and walks over to him and he says, are you uh, buying? He says, yeah, I got to buy wholesale. So the guy says, I have just the thing for you. Takes him into his warehouse and he shows him a wagon full of toothpicks. Ten million toothpicks. And he says, all these toothpicks for one little bag of gold. The boy buys the wagon and he's so thrilled with how quickly he uh, caught on to how to make a living. And he brings the wagon home to his father and his father takes one look at this junk and he says to him, you simpleton, you golem, you idiot. We're, we're, we're simple farmers. What do we need with toothpicks? Who uses toothpicks? This is junk. So the boy is embarrassed and he uh, goes to his room. Months go by and the father can't stand it. The kid's not doing nothing. He calls him down and he says to him, here's a bag of gold coins. Go into the marketplace. You'll buy wholesale. You'll sell retail and become a mensch. But this time, Buy something meaningful. The boy promises to be very careful. And he goes off to the marketplace and he's wandering around with this bag dangling from his belt like a simpleton. And this guy notices and walks over to him and he says, are you looking to buy? He says, yeah, but it has to be something meaningful. The guy says, I have just the thing for you. Takes him into his warehouse and he shows him a wagon full of chauffeurs. Ram's horns. What could be more, more meaningful than a chauffeur? And this is a whole wagon full. How much is this? Uh, just a little bag of gold. He buys the wagon, and this time he's sure his father will be very pleased with him. He runs home with the Matsya, and he shows his father what he bought. His father takes one look, and he says, You simpleton. You golem. You idiot. The entire community uses one chauffeur. And a chauffeur lasts about 900 years. <laughs> what do we need? What do we need with a whole wagon full of chauffeurs? Anyway, the boy is insulted, embarrassed. He goes to his room. Now the father has a problem. He's got two wagons full of junk blocking his driveway. So he calls in a professional trader. And he says to him, I know this is asking a lot. I can't imagine what you could possibly trade for this junk. But do me a favor and take this wagon of toothpicks and get rid of it for me. Anything is better than this. So the guy takes a wagon of toothpicks and he drives off. The father then calls in another professional trader and he says to him, I know this is asking a lot. 
couldn't sell this thing to anybody, but maybe you can exchange it for something, anything, anything is better than this. And he gives him the wagon full of shafers and he sends him off. A week goes by, and uh, the father is sitting on the porch, and he sees from the east a wagon is approaching. And off to the west, another wagon is approaching. And as the wed- as the wagons <laughs> weddings as the wagons get closer, they look strangely familiar. And it suddenly dawns on the father what had happened. And it is so funny that he is rolling on the porch. Obviously, the guy who had taken the toothpicks had met the guy who had taken the chauffeurs. Says one to the other, <laughs> the owner asked me if I could exchange this for anything. What have you got? And he says, yeah, the owner of this thing also said anything is better than this. What have you got? So the guy who took the chauffeurs is bringing back the toothpicks. And the guy who took the toothpicks is bringing back the chauffeurs. And the father is rolling on the porch. Now the son hears all this commotion. And he comes downstairs and he sees what's going on. So he says to his father, he says, this isn't fair. It's not fair. I'm a simple boy who never had any experience in business. I went out into the marketplace and I bought toothpicks. And when I brought them home, you didn't laugh. You weren't rolling on the porch. You called me idiot. You called me golem. You said I was a simpleton. And when I brought chauffeurs, you didn't laugh. You called me names. You told me I was an idiot. And here you have two grown men, professionals in their field, experience of 40 years, they're bringing back the same junk. How come you're not calling them golem, idiot, simpleton? So the father looks up at his son and he says, you golem, you idiot. I sent them out with junk and they brought back junk. It's funny. <laughs> you I sent out with gold. And you brought me back junk. That's the difference. The story is used by the Dibni Magid, who was great at parables, to explain why it is that God is more picky with the Jewish people than he is with other people. Other people, whatever they eat is fine. Whenever they work is fine. Whenever a couple, a husband and wife are together, it's fine. Comes to the Jew, no, you can't eat this, not today, <laughs> not this week, it's Pesach. This you can't eat, this you can never eat, this you can eat sometimes, this you must eat, this you have to eat. And when it comes to, uh, to work, today you can't work, now you have to work part-time, half a day, you have to go home early, you can't work well together, you can work a little bit, you can cook, but you can't do anything else. I mean, now, when it comes to marriage, yes, you have to get married, but no, not today, no, not tomorrow, next week, a week from... What is all this picky stuff? You know, leave us alone. <laughs> Why can't we eat what everybody else eats and do what everybody else does? So the Bible might get said because God sends us into this world with gold, with a, with a Jewish soul, with a godly soul. A godly soul you have to invest properly. You don't exchange a godly soul for garbage. And the same is true for godly experiences. When we have a, uh, an inspiring experience, when God makes himself a little more available, and we get a little more of a taste 
of godliness and holiness and goodness and Jewishness and so on, that, that becomes our gold. And that gold, we have to invest carefully. We have to invest it, and we have to invest it carefully. When, when Moshe asked God to make himself known, Moshe said, I want to know you. I want, I want to see you. God said, you can't see my face, but you can see my back. And the Gemara says, what did Moshe see when God showed his back? Moshe saw the knot of the tefillin that lies on the back of the neck. When, when you look at a person wearing tefillin from the back, you see a knot. So when God showed himself to Moshe, what Moshe saw was a knot of the tefillin on the back of God's head, so to speak. So Gemara says, what is, God wears tefillin, what does it say in the tefillin? In our tefillin it says that there's only one God. But what, what, what meaning does tefillin have for God to be putting on tefillin? So the Gemara says that in God's tefillin it is written, there is only one Jewish people. So just as we put on tefillin to connect ourselves to the exclusive relationship with one God, God puts on tefillin and proclaims that there's only one Jewish people. In fact, the, uh, the expression is, who is like your people Israel, one nation in the world? So when God puts on tefillin, he's basically celebrating the greatness of the Jew. And when we put on tefillin, we celebrate the greatness of God. So the Baduchava once said to someone who was critical of a Jew, he says, watch what you're saying. You realize the implications of what you're saying. If there's one letter not perfect in tefillin, then the tefillin are not kosher. Every Jew is a letter in God's tefillin. If you criticize a Jew, you're implying that God's tefillin are not kosher. So when you think of another Jew, remember that you're talking about God's tefillin here. And on another occasion, the Balduchever actually said to God, if you don't forgive the Jews their sins, then you're making your own tefillin puzzle. You're condemning your own tefillin. The Baal Shem Tev made the love of a fellow Jew the cornerstone of his entire philosophy. Not that the love of a fellow Jew was invented by the Baal Shem Tev. It's a mitzvah in Torah. And Rabbi Akiva long ago said that it is a cardinal mitzvah. Klau Godel Batar. And yet, the Baal Shem Tev chose that as the cornerstone of his philosophy as if it were something new. And the Rebbe has explained, Hasidus has explained very thoroughly and very convincingly the greatness of a Jew, the uniqueness of a Jew, and therefore the basis for the mitzvah of loving every Jew. Now, it used to be 
that one would love a fellow Jew because Jews did good things. Jews kept mitzvahs, Jews gave tzedakah, Jews were kind, Jews were pious, Jews were able, they were refined. Jews were special. So love your fellow Jew seemed like a very reasonable thing to do. After all, Jews are good people. The Baal Shem Tov came along and said, that's all very nice, but you haven't begun to love your fellow Jew. Because if what you love is the qualities of goodness and kindness and piety and mitzvahs and special behavior, then you're not loving the Jew, you're loving those virtues. The Baal Shem Tov came along and said, it's your fellow Jew you have to love, not his mitzvahs not his good deeds. Because what, you, what we see happening is that those people who claim to love their fellow Jews, but those Jews who act like non-Jews, are excluded. So when you ask the average person, do you love your fellow Jew? He says, sure. He say, what about what's his name? Well, not much of a Jew, is he? So it's not the Jew that we love. It's the good things that a Jew does. But that a non-Jew can also do good things. And there can be a Jew who does bad things. And the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew applies to all Jews equally. Equally. Baal Shem Tov said you should love your fellow Jew even if you never saw him. The Magid, who succeeded the Baal Shem Tov, said, you should love your fellow Jew, the wicked as well as the righteous. The Alter Rebbe came along and said, you should love your fellow Jew, not as well, <laughs> not even. Not that you should love all Jews, even the wicked one. The Alter Rebbe said, not even. There's no distinction. So it's not certainly the righteous and even the non-right. No, even. All Jews are the same. And for that, you love your fellow Jew. Appreciating the Jewishness of a Jew is not just the cornerstone of loving your fellow Jew. It's not just the, uh, the essence of that particular mitzvah. And it's not just the essence of being a chassid. It's the essence of Judaism. Because if you don't love your fellow Jew, then you don't know what Judaism is. The person who says, I know some non-Jews who are better than certain Jews, then he doesn't know Yiddishkeit. He doesn't know God from a hole in the wall. It's not just a flaw in his in his Avas Yisrael. It's a, it's a glaring gap in his understanding and appreciation of Torah, of God, of Judaism, of Jews, of Mashiach, of the world, of everything. I was at a, at a yeshiva in Israel a couple of years ago. A women's school of uh, Balei Tshuva. But until recently, they, they refused to teach Hasidus there. 
So some of the some of the women had been to Beis Khan and they asked me to come by and visit when I was in Israel. So I came by. It was unofficial. The school did not approve of it and so on. Anyway, so we're sitting and talking. It's a Shabbos afternoon. And I'm trying to get across this idea about how a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You don't become more Jewish if you keep mitzvahs. You don't become less Jewish if you do sins. A Jew is a Jew. And if you're a Jew, then you are God's tefillin. If you're a Jew, you are the apple of God's eye. That's what it says in the Torah. And it doesn't say there if you're an Orthodox Jew. It says if you're from the children of Israel, then you are the apple of God's eye. And what is, what is the, uh, the choice of that particular analogy? Why the apple of his eye? Why not uh, his brain, his heart? Why the apple of his eye? So that everyone once explained, because the apple of the eye is the only part of the body that hurts if you simply touch it. Everything else, if you hit your arm, if you bang your head, if you bruise your knee, it hurts. But if you touch it, it doesn't hurt. But if you touch the apple of your eye, just the touch itself already hurts. It is so sensitive. And that's how God feels about a Jew. That if you, if you, if you so much as touch a hair on their head, it hurts God. So I'm trying to say that this applies to all Jews equally and so on, and it's not getting through. <laughs> not getting through. They say, oh yeah, because, because Jews have mitzvahs to do. So no, no. Even if they don't do mitzvahs. They say, yeah, but they, they could do mitzvahs. It had nothing to do with mitzvahs. Leave the mitzvah out of it. It's the Jew that we're talking about. All of a sudden, the light went off. Seems somebody brushed past the uh, light switch. It was Shabbos afternoon, and, and somebody switched the light off. <laughs> and there was this gasp. The whole room just <gasps> So I took advantage of the opportunity, and I said, I said, um, how, what would what would be more shocking to you? What would be more sinful if we should find out that the person who turned off the light is observant, or if you should find out that the person who turned off the light is non-observant? And let's assume that they did it on purpose. And they all said it would be much worse if the person who turned off the light was observant. Which would be worse? Makes absolutely no difference. Of course, you're right. The guy who knows better is a real idiot for not doing what he knows he should do. But we're not talking about who's an idiot. We're talking about which is, where is the sin greater? Exactly the same. No difference whatsoever. Let's talk about it in the positive. Two men are shipwrecked on an island. I'm not sure exactly how to, how to work this out. And they have a pair, one pair of tefillin. And they have only one chance for one of them to put on the tefillin. I don't know. After that, the tefillin self-destruct or something. I don't know. <laughs> now, of these two men, one of them is the Rebbe. And the other is a bar mitzvah boy who had his bar mitzvah party two days ago who comes from a non-observant family and had no intentions of ever putting them on again anyway. 
Who gets to put on the film? It's exactly the same. It's a toss-up. <laughs> so let me tell you one more story. True story. There was a chosid by the name of Rifel Khan who uh, defied the, the communists and uh, opened yeshivas and haters and so on. And they, they uh, tracked him down. They, they, finally caught, they finally caught up with him. And they sent him off to, uh, to Siberia, to exile. For many years, eight, nine, ten years, I don't know. And during those years, he was moved around from place to place, a year here, a year there. Gives you an idea of how special these people, these people were. During one of his exiles, which was way up north near the Arctic Ocean, he writes in his diary that he was sent to this place, a village right off the river Ob, Ob, um, in a village called Che. This village originally was inhabited only by Samoyeds, or Laps, I don't know what they're called now, Eskimos. Very primitive people. And in this village, the government decided to open uh, an exile station. So they built a, a building there for the, for the police and sent prisoners there. The place is so primitive, he says, that until the prison opened up their building, these people had never seen fire. Because there's nothing in that entire area that burns. There's no vegetation. There's nothing burns. The prison opened up the center there and they introduced kerosene to the, to the village. But they were accustomed to eating raw meat. So they never bothered cooking, even after they, they discovered kerosene. So these people basically ate raw meat. They lived off reindeer and polar bear. From the reindeer, they made their clothing, their tents, their uh, whatever they needed. And the polar bear, once in a while, was their, uh, their uh, gourmet meal. They would infrequently catch a bird, a fish, through the ice. And that's how they lived. He also discovered that they domesticated reindeer. And he says it was, it was wonder, wondrous to see five or six reindeer harnessed to a sleigh flying over the ice. The reindeer, he says, is a kosher animal. So if he had been a shochet, if he knew, if he was a, then he could have prepared the meat and he would have had kosher meat. But since he wasn't, and besides, he says he doesn't think he could stomach raw meat, 
So he uh, had a very, very limited diet. The prison provided a piece of bread twice a day and some and some water that passed for soup. This was this was the condition that uh, that met him when he arrived in Kheh. They were then told about ten prisoners were told that they have to find their own lodging. And wanting to put on his tefillin and to daven and so on, instead of renting space in a tent with a with a villager with a with a samoyed, he uh, tried to live in a in a cave. But the cold became too much for him, and eventually he had to give in and move in with a with a Samoyed family. The guy curtained off a corner of his tent, and uh, the and the Chassid paid for it with cigarettes that he received from home. Now, wanting to put on the film, and being very afraid of being caught, he got up very early before the Samoyeds got up. And he put on the film, and then hid them under his uh, duffel bag or whatever. One time, as while he was wearing the tefillin, the man of the house walked in on him and caught him in the act. And for a moment, he was he was stunned. He didn't know what to what to think or what to do. He was afraid that they would take away the tefillin. They would they would punish him more. The guy stood there and stared at him. And he then discovered just how primitive these people are. The guy stares at him for a while and finally says to him, all the people from Moscow do this? He said, yeah. He says, oh, okay. He had no idea that this had anything to do with being Jewish. He thought people in the big city do this because he had never met anyone from Moscow. So after that, he didn't have to hide the film anymore. The people grew to know him a little bit, came to know him, and grew to respect him very much. The villagers, the peasants, these primitives. And they began calling him the holy man. Uh, one Friday night, soon after he moved into this tent, the villager, the, the, his landlord, lit a kerosene lamp for himself and then lit another one for the chassid. And he brings the lamp into the chassid's corner of the room. So the chassid says to him, if you don't mind, can I have the other lamp? He says, no, it's the same thing. Same. Just as good. He says, yeah, but if you don't mind, can I have the other lamp? Because when a non-Jew performs a labor on Shabbos for a Jew, then the Jew is not allowed to... Uh, benefit from it. So the lamp that this guy had lit for the chassid, he's not allowed to use. So he asked if he would give him the lamp that he had lit for himself. So the guy said, it's the same thing, they're just as good. He said, if, he says, why do you want this, the other one? He said, I can't explain it, but if you don't mind, I'd like the other one. He says, okay, fine. Like one. The next Friday night, the guy lights the, the two lamps and he brings in one of them. So the chassid says, uh, would you mind giving me the other one? He says, no, no, this is the one you wanted last week. <laughs> he says, yeah, but this week, if you don't mind, I want the other one. I mean, it's awesome 
that a person can have such presence of mind and be so concerned with the halacha when his life's condition is so miserable, separated from his family, doesn't know if he'll ever see them again, he's starving to death, he's terrified of these people because they can turn on you in a second and kill you without any conscience whatsoever. The prison officials are out to get him. What kind of life is this? And, and, he, and he's worried because you're not allowed to benefit from a lamp that is an incredible human being. He was there two years in this village of Cheh. Once the people be began to appreciate how special he was, they began to treat him as one of their own. When they would catch a fish, whoever it was, any one of the villagers, if he caught a fish, the first thing he did was bring it to the chassid. Say so he should see whether it's a kosher fish. And if it's a kosher fish, it's his. That happened very rarely. He says one time they took him down to the river and uh, he saw how they caught a fish that was five meters long. I don't know how big that is, but it's kind of a trophy. A little whale. Oh, another thing that he marveled at was the northern lights. He says they were just incredible up there. And uh, you know, usually they last you. When we get to see them, we see them for five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. He says over there it went on for hours. The other thing he was impressed with is that when these primitives, using these primitive eating utensils that they make out of bones of the reindeer, when they would eat a fish, they would eat it very fast with this little crude fork. And they would clean away every scrape of meat and leave the entire spine of the fish untouched. Everybody's good at something. <laughs> Everybody's got their talents. Their only drink, or their main drink, was blood. Animal blood. And so they would catch an animal they wouldn't uh, shoot it or because uh, they didn't want to lose a drop of blood. And then they would put all the blood into a big bowl and everybody would help themselves from... And, and the meat is raw and they're drinking blood and this is, this is what he has to live with. The first Pesach that he was there, um, he received a box of matzahs from home and that's all he ate, the entire Pesach. The next year, it was already a week before Pesach, and the matzahs hadn't arrived. And the villagers, the peasants, knew that if he doesn't get those matzahs, he is going to starve to death, because he won't eat anything else. The bread that they provide him from the prison, obviously he's not going to eat on Pesach. So if he doesn't get that box, he's going to starve to death. So every morning, these peasants would come to the prison building to see whether there was mail for the chassid, whether his box had arrived, because they were worried for him. Days go by and it's not arriving. All of a sudden, a, a messenger arrives from the, from, the Ar from the Arctic, from the, from the ocean, the Arctic Ocean. 
that a prison official wants to come visit and he wants a sled to come pick him up at the port because the rivers were still frozen. And that's why nothing was coming through because they were basically cut off from the world. The, the ice on the river was not strong enough and they didn't trust it enough to travel on the ice. But on the other hand, it didn't let any boats go th come through. So they were cut off. So this guy comes from the Arctic Ocean and he sends a message that he wants a, a sled to come pick him up. Nobody wanted to go. They were afraid of, of sinking, of breaking through the ice. So they finally chose one of the, uh, one of the guards there, one of the, and he had to go. So the people, the prisoners came running to him asking that he stop at the post office at the port city to pick up their packages because nobody had received any packages from home. And he refused. He says, the last thing I want to do is add weight to the, to the sled. He comes to the port city and he goes into the post office to get his packages. The guy in the post office wants to get rid of all these boxes that have been sitting around on the shelves, but the guy refuses to take them. So the man says to him, he says, there's one box I think you better take. He brings out this box, and it's the most officious-looking box he had ever seen. He says, this looks like it's some kind of a government military box. If you don't take it, they may send you back to get it. When he heard that, he said, okay, I'll take it, I'll take it. Turns out that this is a box of matzahs sent by the Chassid's wife. And what these people did, this evil government, knowing that it was matzahs, and knowing that he was waiting for it to have for Pesach, they purposely sent it down south instead of sending it up north. And it traveled all the way down into the Ukraine. Each post office sent it away to someplace else. And it finally started traveling back up north. And now it was sitting in the post office um, the week before Pesach, looking very official because every post office that it had come to had put up another stamp, another signature, another seal. And it, it was the most impressive looking thing this man had ever seen. Their intention was to keep it moving from post office to post office so that it would get to Che after Pesach. Somehow it got there on time. The guy takes the box with his official guest and he comes back to town. And they take a look at the address on the box and of course it's addressed to Rafael Kaganovich Kahan. They open it up, matzah. And it's two days before Pesach. The villagers were so thrilled that they picked him up on their shoulders and they danced with him. And they sang, the God of the Jews takes care of his people. As they're dancing, the Chassid says to one of the other prisoners, who was also Jewish, he says to him, I don't think his name was Ginsburg, he says to him, Ginsburg, you'll come to me tomorrow night, and we'll make a seder together, we'll share the matzah. Now, this Ginsburg was a prisoner, not because he uh, practices Yiddishkeit. He had been arrested because he was a Ganif. And he had, and he had no interest in Yiddishkeit, and he had, that didn't observe Pesach, and he wasn't interested in having a seder. The Chassid says to him, you'll come to me tomorrow night, we'll make a seder together, we'll share the matzah. The villagers, the Samoyeds, hear this, and they get upset. And they said to him, no, you can't do that. 
You can't share the matzah with him. He's no good. We saw, a couple of days ago, he killed a bird and ate it. So he's obviously not a good Jew. Don't, don't give him any matzah. Now these people were so fickle that the chassid had to be very careful not to upset them. So thinking quickly, he says, you're right. You're right. And he turns to Ginsburg and he says, I'll tell you what. If you promise me that for the eight days of Pesach you won't eat any birds, <laughs> then I'll share the matzah with you. This the Samaritan approved of, and they agreed, and, uh, and, and, and they all went home. That night, two Samoyeds slip into Ginsburg's tent and they put a knife to his throat and they said to him, we heard what that holy man said. He made a condition with you that you're not going to eat anything you're not supposed to eat for the next eight days. We're going to be watching. And if you eat anything you're not supposed to eat, we'll cut your throat. Talk about motivation. <laughs> Ginsburg kept Pesach scrupulously. And he ate matzah. And he had a seder. Well, at least matzah part of the seder. When this chassid came home after his years of exile, and his son, who later was my teacher of Hasidus, is sitting by his, at his father's feet, and he's listening to all the stories about what happened in, uh, during the imprisonment and so on. His father tells him, I learned to appreciate the greatness of a mitzvah. He says, one year, when I was in prison, during these years of uh, exile, they wouldn't give me the matzah. My wife had sent the matzah, they wouldn't give me the matzah. And Pesach went by and I had no matzah. One year, I managed to have wine for Pesach. One year, I managed to have matzah. One year, I had matzah, but no wine. One year, I had wine, but no matzah. Well, the possi possible combinations that the Shulchan Aruch talks about, what do you do if you don't have the four cups? That year, he says, when, I, when they wouldn't give me the matzah, he says, I remember sitting in my prison cell, crying my heart out. And believe me, he says, I wasn't crying because of the danger I was in. I wasn't crying because of uh, the fact that I was separated from my family. I wasn't crying because of the hunger. I wanted just a piece of matzah. Because it was the Seder night and I had no matzah and it was killing me, he says. I was crying bitter tears. Bitter herbs I had, but I wanted matzah. And I thought I was really something special. After all, a Jewish heart yearns for a piece of matzah on Pesach. Something special. But then that year in Cheh, when Ginsburg ate the matzah with me, I realized something very powerful. When I sat in the prison cell and cried my heart out, I would have given my right arm for a piece of matzah, but I didn't have any matzah. Then that night in that prison cell, 
Nothing divine happened. But in Che, when Ginsburg ate a piece of matzah, because, because some primitive Eskimo put a knife to his throat and forced him to eat the matzah, when he ate that matzah, something divine happened. A divine commandment was fulfilled, and a divine light was brought into the world. And I can sit and cry for a piece of matzah all night long. Nothing divine happens because there's no matzah. The mitzvah itself is a divine object. And when you do the mitzvah, it's as infinite, as divine as anything can possibly be. On the other hand, Ginsburg may have done something very divine, but he himself did not become very divine. Whereas the guy who's crying for a piece of matzah, he hasn't become divine, but he's a special person. So if you're looking for divinity, for, div for up absolute, infinite truth, watch Ginsburg eat matzah. You want a shidduch? <laughs> Don't look at Ginsburg's family, look at uh, the Chassid's family, because he's a real mensch. But a mensch is not divine. A mitzvah is divine. So the focus for us has to be not on how much of a mensch we are becoming, but on how divine the mitzvah is. And the same is true with our fellow Jew. A fellow Jew may not be a mensch, but he's a divine being. So the, the love of a fellow Jew is not at all dependent on the quality of the person, of the persona, it's not how much of a mensch he is. It's how divine he is. And if you appreciate divinity, then you, then you see divinity even in a Jew who is not at all a mensch. Because you may not think he's a mensch. And he may not be behaving like a mensch. But if he's the apple of God's eye, what, what, more, can you, what more can you say? If he's God's tefillin, or if she is God's tefillin, what could be more divine? And the fact that you disapprove because you find this person to be disappointingly non-mensch, God is just as smart, and his standards are just as high, and yet to him, this Jew is the apple of his eye. So the thought of hurting another Jew in any way at all should become not only a sin, but a totally unthinkable thing. Totally unthinkable. The Rebbe's father once explained, <clears throat> there's a Pesach in the Chumash where God is angry at the Jews and he threatens to destroy them. So Moshe is arguing in defense of the Jews and he says, if you forgive them, and if you don't, then erase me from your book. So all the commentaries rush to explain this incomplete sentence. Moshe says, if you forgive them, and if you don't, erase me from your book. 
So the commentaries say what he meant, he meant to say, if you forgive them, then it's fine. But if you don't forgive them, then erase me from the book. But, but those words are missing from the text. So that Rebbe's father explained it like this. God came to Moshe and said, I'm going to wipe out their people. They're, they're just too bad. So Moshe said, but you promised the patriarchs, you promised Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov that, that their children would be forever. So how can you destroy them? So God said, I'll start all over again with you and your children. When Moshe heard this, Moshe says, whether you forgive them or if you don't forgive them, either way, erase me from your book. Why should he be erased from God's book if God forgives them? So the Rebbe's father said, when Moshe heard that God was considering destroying the Jewish people, and what made it possible to even consider such a thing is because Moshe could be the beginning of another... He said, if I am the cause of such a thought, then erase me from your book no matter what else happens. If I am contributing in some way to the possible damage to another Jew, then even if you forgive them, I don't want to exist anymore. I don't want to be the cause of even a thought of harming the Jew. And what kind of Jews was Moshe defending? The greatest? The best? The most pious? The holiest? No, he was defending Jews who made a golden calf. There used to be a mitzvah called Avas Yisrael. Rabbi Akiva said it was a big mitzvah. It was an indispensable mitzvah. The Baal Shem Tov came along and said, Avas Yisrael is not a mitzvah. If you treat it as a mitzvah, you fail. Avas Yisrael is the one reliable truth in the world. Avas Yisrael is not a mitzvah. Avas Yisrael is the whole story. It's everything. Because Avas Yisrael doesn't just mean that you do someone a favor. Avas Yisrael means you know what a Jew is. And once you know what a Jew is, how could you hurt him? How could you stand seeing a Jew hurt? How can you not be in awe once you know what a Jew is? And once you know what a Jew is, then you are a lot closer to appreciating what God is then Yiddishkeit has become real to you. But if you don't appreciate the godliness of a Jew, you'll never appreciate the godliness of God. So Yiddishkeit is closed to you. 